Groundhog Day on Biden's agenda. Are we going to see Joe Manchin's shadow? The lead starts right now. Speaker Pelosi tells the Democratic caucus she wants a vote on the two major pieces of Biden's legislative goals before they all hit happy hour tomorrow. But once again, we have to ask, is this actually going to happen? Quote, don't mess with moms. The anger so many parents have been feeling about shutdown schools burst open this week as voters went to the polls in two states where classrooms remained empty for longer than most. Plus, just one black juror selected to hear the case of Ahmaud Arbery's killing and the judge even acknowledging intentional discrimination. So why is the trial still proceeding? Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin this hour with our health lead, President Biden, today imposing a January 4th deadline for more than 100 million Americans to get fully vaccinated. The controversial move by the Biden administration applies to private businesses with at least 100 employees, as well as to certain healthcare workers and federal contractors. This mandate would go further than any other U.S. vaccine mandate so far during this pandemic, and it is already facing fierce resistance from Republican governors and lawmakers who say this is clear federal government overreach. Trade groups oppose the rule as well. The National Retail Federation arguing today that it's, quote, burdensome for retailers during the crucial holiday shopping season. This announcement comes just after an embarrassing election night where the president and his party were punished by voters for not ending the pandemic or passing their agenda to help struggling Americans. Pressure is mounting on Democrats to deliver for the American people. As CNN's Phil Manningly reports, the Democratic Party is increasingly desperate to have something they can showcase to their constituents. It was not a good night. With fingers pointed in every direction after tough election losses for Democrats, the party coalescing around at least one response. They need results now. There's no question. If we, uh, the more results we can produce in a way that is people understand in their lives, the better it is. Speaker Nancy Pelosi telling her members a vote on the $1.75 trillion economic and climate package could come tonight, one day after President Biden delivered this parting message to Democrats. Get it to my desk. Biden's top negotiators on Capitol Hill as Democratic leaders presented the latest version of the bill to members behind closed doors. We are ready to continue to work as we have been with members to get this done. Making clear that even with the decision to put paid family leave back into the proposal, it will be fully paid for, sources told CNN. A critical message to wary moderates as Democrats race to count the votes. We're going to pass both bills, but in order to do so, we have to have votes for both bills, and that's where we are. But those new additions to the bill create clear hurdles in the Senate. I don't think it belongs in the bill. All as the issue White House officials attribute as the driving force behind the president's low poll numbers hit a new milestone, 750,000 U.S. deaths due to COVID-19. The Biden administration setting January 4th as the deadline for companies with more than 100 employees to require vaccinations or regular testing. First of all, vaccine requirements work. The most aggressive move to date from Biden to ramp up vaccinations, with administration officials already preparing for GOP legal challenges. The administration clearly has the authority uh, to protect workers and actions announced by the president are designed to save lives and stop spread of COVID. 
And Jake, that grim milestone of 750,000 lives lost due to COVID, part of the reason why the administration believes they have the authority to move forward on this. Administration officials saying that they believe under that authority they have the ability to act quickly to try and protect workers from any grave danger, something they say COVID-19 very clearly is, making them very comfortable in terms of the legal basis of what they're moving forward on now, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House, thank you so much. Uh, Joining us now, live to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, as you heard Phil just report, the Biden administration has this new January 4th vaccination deadline. It it also applies to facilities that receive Medicare funding Mm -hmm. or Medicaid funding covering 17 million healthcare workers. I I know you're you're not a political guy. You're, You're a doctor. You're a medical guy. How effective could this vaccine be in getting the remaining millions of holdouts vaccinated? These mandates, yeah, I mean, they could be very effective, uh, Jake. It, it doesn't come without some holdouts still remaining and some fights, as uh, Phil just alluded to in his piece. Um, but they could be very effective. There's been examples, you know, there were some thousands of uh, uh, police workers in New York that were expected uh, to essentially no longer be working by November 1st because they would not abide by mandates. And so far, the number is 34 uh, people who have taken unpaid leave. Uh, United Airlines, they put in vaccine mandates and they had some 59% of their workforce uh, vaccinated before the mandates. Now they're close to 99%. So it makes a difference. It's unfortunate that that's has, that, that is what the uh, response has to be in order to make this happen. But we see it in the healthcare world as well. Jake, I think you and I have talked about this even pre-pandemic with flu shots, for example, across the board, if you look at healthcare workers who have uh, been vaccinated against the flu, it's around 80%. But if you break it down in terms of where you have requirements, close to 94, 95% in those places, 70% if you don't have a requirement. So it makes a difference. You'd think people would just do it on their own because these vaccines are so effective. But this will make a difference, Jake. Yeah, these are miracles of modern science. Started during the Trump uh, administration. Uh, and they are the way out of the pandemic. Um, there, this is uh, exciting news this week for parents of young kids. The CDC has given the green light for COVID vaccines for kids age 5 to 11. Some families remain anxious. Uh, they're leaning toward a, a wait-and-see approach. Look, we can't begrudge them their fears about kids and vaccines 5 to 11. But what's your message to them? Well, you know, I talked a lot of scientists, pediatricians, people who are involved in this field who have children that age. And one thing I'll tell you is they're all getting their kids vaccinated. I mean, people who are looking at the data like I did, you did, you know, when our kids got vaccinated, they're doing the same thing. And that's the decision they're all making pretty universally. I think there's a a few things. One is that right now the numbers are, as you point out, about 27% or so of people, these parents say they're going to just do this right away. But that leaves a lot of people who are either waiting and seeing or so far saying definitively no. Those numbers will change with time. Sometimes people do want to just wait and see. And then and when they see everything's going OK, they'll go ahead and get the, uh, the vaccine. I think the, uh, the other thing to remind, Jake, is that, you know, when we talk about the story of this pandemic, it's often been told of as a story uh, of elderly people primarily being affected by this disease. And that is true. Kids are less likely to be affected, but they are affected. Hundreds have gotten, hundreds have died. Thousands have been hospitalized. Tens of thousands have gotten the disease. 100,000 kids were diagnosed with COVID last week alone. 100,000. Think about the ramifications of that on society overall. Also, you know, like I think of things like the chickenpox vaccine, which was this big deal when it came out. Uh, but before we had the chickenpox vaccine, around 100 children a year died of chickenpox. And it was too many. 
It was too many. They said, we need a vaccine. And now we have one. And chickenpox has become a, a far less consequential disease. COVID is more, far more consequential than that. This vaccine works. Get your kids vaccinated. I looked at the studies. Uh, most parents who have looked at the studies have chosen to get their kids vaccinated. And speaking of getting kids vaccinated, you interviewed U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Morthy at a CNN event this morning for CNN Citizen. And he had some exciting news about vaccines for kids under the age of five. Take a listen. And I have a vested interest in, in that as well, as right. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter at home. Uh, so I've been waiting for that, too. Look, the trials uh, for kids under five have been underway, and we anticipate that in early 2022 uh, is when we may see uh, a vaccine available for kids in that range. And I'll tell you, I can't wait for it. That's going to be an important day for us as well. So for kids under five, a vaccine coming, huge news for so many families. Could that also make a big difference in bringing the pandemic under control? Because what I've been told is right now, the big vectors, the big spreaders are kids. That's right. I, that, that's, that's the issue is that, you know, again, make it clear that the, the vaccines are to help protect the kids themselves. Kids can get very sick of this disease. And I just, you know, I want to keep emphasizing that point. But they can also be significant vectors uh, going into the holidays. Uh, you know, uh, people are going to be spending time with elderly grandparents, maybe for the first time in some time indoors, uh, hopefully unmasked for these kids five to 11 who can get vaccinated. After that, you know, the younger kids, if they can get these vaccines, it'll help decrease the spread overall and hopefully finally get this pandemic under control. One thing I do want to point out, Jake, we are we are obviously have a lot of vaccine availability in this country. If we are talking about pandemic control globally, we do have to really start thinking about these shots around the world. These numbers sort of jumped out at me. We've given out close to 52 million boosters in wealthy countries between August and November, while total doses in low income countries have been 36 million. Now, we've known that disparity exists for a while, but when we talk about pandemic control, we're going we're gonna to need to make sure more vaccines are going to places all over the world. Yeah, not just for humanitarian reasons, to make sure that there aren't these uh, other forms of mutations. Variants. Yeah, yep. the variants that come forward. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Could yeah. investigators soon learn what Do Donald Trump was dur doing during the insurrection? The hearing today on the matter next. Plus, a terrifying first, CNN learning that a drone targeted key energy infrastructure. And authorities are not sure who might be responsible. Stay with us. In our politics lead, we are awaiting a judge's decision in a high-stakes legal fight dealing with the investigation of the January 6th insurrection. Former President Trump's attorneys are trying to keep the January 6th committee from obtaining hundreds of pages of documents that are currently held by the National Archives. They're, they're arguing that Trump can claim executive privilege to keep them secret. As Paula Reed reports for us now, the judge criticized both sides during today's hearing. Okay. In a high-stakes court hearing in Washington, Trump lawyers arguing the former president should be able to keep more than 700 pages of his White House records secret from lawmakers investigating the January 6th riot. We fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. But federal judge Tanya Chutkin at times appeared deeply skeptical about Trump's case. Are you really saying that the president's notes, talking points, telephone conversations on January 6th have no relation to the matter on which Congress is considering legislation? The January 6th riot happened in the Capitol. That is literally Congress's house. The House Select Committee insists these records are essential to its investigation. 
We want to uh, document a complete record of everything that was going on, really minute by minute, during the day of the insurrection. President Biden, who as the sitting president, has the power to withhold previous administration's documents, so far has declined to do so, pointing to the extraordinary circumstances of January 6th. The former president's actions represented a unique and existential threat to our democracy uh, that we don't feel can be swept under the rug. Trump has asked the federal court to block the committee's requests, arguing that the January 6th investigation is illegitimate and that even as a former president, he should get control over access to his records. The committee wants to see documents from top White House advisors, handwritten notes about January 6th, Trump's daily schedule, White House visitor logs, and call records. Trump's lawyer, Justin Clark, arguing the requests are overly broad and that failure to block them would open up the door for the partisanship of document requests and blowing a hole in executive privilege that should concern everybody. While the judge asked Clark to dial down the rhetoric a bit, she challenged lawyers for the House committee on the breadth of the documents requested, saying... Some of these requests seem very narrowly tailored, but some are alarmingly broad, and there has to be some limit. The National Archives says it intends to hand over the Trump documents next Friday unless the judge blocks them, which she did not appear willing to do. Now, this is such a historic case with implications for future presidents. It's likely whatever decision the judge makes will be appealed. And we also learned today, Jake, that the committee has interviewed over 150 people so far in its investigation. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Uh, let's talk to somebody who knows a little bit about executive privilege. John Dean was White House counsel during President Richard Nixon's administration. He was obviously a key figure in the Watergate investigation. Uh, Mr. Dean, as always, great to have you here. So the judge criticized the Trump team's executive privilege claim. Give us a, a quick background on an executive privilege. And do you think uh, it can be successfully invoked in this case. Executive privilege comes from the separation of powers, that the fact we have three branches of government and each branch can do its own thing uh, within its own powers. And the other branch has limited rights to look at what they're doing. For example, we can't look at what law clerk, what the judge's law clerk is doing in this instance. Uh, the president is saying, even though I'm no longer president, this is stuff will happen while I was. So therefore, I have a right to withhold it. Well, I don't think that's going to hold up. Uh, I think the judge sounds like she was trying to narrow the breadth of the of the inquiry or the the request for documents a little bit, uh, but she's not buying uh, that because this was a very unusual. If if an insurrection isn't criminal, it is certainly out of all boundaries of democracy. Uh, that's pretty hard privilege to claim that you can't uh, let the Congress see that material. And the judge, as you know, called the January Sixth Committee's document request alarmingly. Uh, broad, which which feeds into the Trump team's argument that this is just a fishing expedition. They just want to get as many documents as possible and find a crime in there. What do you think specifically the committee might be looking for? Well, I think they're trying to find out what Trump's role was in this. And I think that the reason you always start with an overbroad discovery request, knowing that it's very likely to get peeled back, uh, what you don't start with on the while Trump has actually let some documents be released, uh, his is much more narrow. And I think that the committee is probably going to prevail on on pretty much of all that they 
the, the, the Trump's trying to withhold. Uh, Jake, let me just add one other thing. You've got a two solo practitioners with little experience in this area representing Trump. On the other side, you have some of the best Washington lawyers representing the, uh, the, the January 6th committee and the National Archives, as well as four amicus briefs. There are a dozen top lawyers involved in this case. So that shows you that Trump, uh, he's not taking it very seriously. He didn't get a top-tier experienced firm to handle this. He's just trying to slow the process down. So assuming the judge rules in favor of the January 6th committee, that will, no question, be appealed, probably, potentially go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. How do you see it playing out? I think in the long run that there, there will be a limited right for a former president uh, to withhold documents. Otherwise, it makes his privilege meaningless, uh, but not an overbroad uh, privilege like Trump is trying to block everything that he did, uh, even if it wasn't presidential or in a, as a part of his official duties, is not going to hold up. There's, there's another uh, legal issue going on, a little less uh, high profile, but the special counsel probe into the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation produced an arrest today. Uh, there's a, a Russian analyst that was a source for the 2016 Steele dossier, that dossier of, of unproven, disproven, and, and lurid allegations about Trump. That analyst has been indicted for allegedly lying to the FBI. This follows, of course, the indictment of a lawyer for lying to the FBI, also about the Steele uh, dossier. What do you make of this? Well, it's hard to put all these pieces together since you typically don't investigate the investigators. And if there were some mistakes made, they should be corrected and the people should be held responsible. Uh, that may be what happened with the uh, DNC lawyer uh, who said he wasn't representing a client, but rather was just representing uh, the greater good. Uh, we'll find out about that. He's pled not guilty. On this latest one, I don't know. But there are there are other things coming up about the fact that the server to, to between Moscow and the Trump uh, uh, headquarters was real. And there's more uh, information coming out about that by experts who say, hey, this wasn't a bogus report. There really were communications going on. So, Jake, all that has yet to be shaken out. And I'm sure we'll hear more of it. All right. John Dean, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. And join me tomorrow night for a new CNN special report, Trumping Democracy, an American coup. Key Republican officials share with me never heard before details about how close American democracy came to crumbling. It's tomorrow night, 9 p.m. CNN's S.E. Cop says Terry McAuliffe lost because he ignored one key rule, don't mess with moms, she says. We'll discuss next. In our politics lead, a reckoning for Democrats trying to figure out how they got schooled in this week's election. And in Virginia, a clear mandate from parents who voted, spend more time focusing on education. CNN exit polls show education was the second most important issue for Virginia voters at 24 percent, trailing only the economy. And a Washington Post poll shows in the last few months leading up to the election, the number of voters who said education was their top concern rose nine points from 15 percent to 24 percent. Let's discuss with CNN's S.E. Cup, conservative commentator Mary Catherine Hamm, and Carrie Rodriguez, the co-founder of the National Parents Union. Mary Catherine, let me, let me start with you, because this was a personal race for you as not only a Virginia voter, but a, a Virginia parent. You pulled your 
daughters out of school to homeschool them during the pandemic because you were worried about how they would do in virtual school. How much of this vote in Virginia this week, Mary Catherine, was parents just plain angry with how long schools had been closed? It is a large part of the story. And you hear a lot about critical race theory and you hear a lot about Loudoun County's uh, issues and stories out there. But I want to remind people that schools were closed physically for in-person learning for more than a year in every Virginia major metro area. Uh, Northern Virginia being among the least attended schools uh, in the nation uh, during 2020 to 2021. Now, at the beginning, parents were willing to give grace, but I watched that grace in all of these Facebook groups trying to get schools back open turn to frustration and turn to real anger. And the reason was that parents looked around and their kids were hurting, particularly those with disabilities who were deprived of things they're legally required to give them in schools. Uh, They looked around them and they saw private schools opening with not many issues. They watched other countries open schools. They watched other states open schools. And the school boards were, to put it charitably, non-responsive to sometimes hostile to parents. Uh, And I think that is a new relationship that they hadn't realized uh, the the boundaries of before, Uh, that a lot of these parents hadn't been engaged and then became very engaged and very upset with the way they were being treated. And S.E., you say Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate for governor who lost Tuesday, you say he ignored a key rule, don't mess with moms. Well, right. Imagine I was a Virginia mom before I I moved um, back east. And imagine all the conditions MK just laid out. And then imagine being a candidate for governor and getting up on a debate stage and saying to those moms, you shouldn't really have a say in your kid's education. That is insane, uh, or should be politics 101. And not only did he sort of double down on it, he defended it just two days before the election. I think it was a huge misstep. You don't mess with moms. And it's a lesson that that both parties have um, have learned the hard way. Trump learned that the hard way in 2020, when a huge, usually reliable voting block for Republicans, white suburban moms, um, you're looking at one, left the party in droves. And he lost without suburban moms, and so did Terry McAuliffe. Yeah, it's interesting, and, and we should note, I think when it comes to uh, kids-deprived uh, classroom, in-person classroom education, uh, Virginia was seventh worst in the country, and New Jersey was 10th worst in the country. Carrie, you hear directly from parents every day. What's the message they want politicians to hear right now? Uh, we're fed up, and we're tired of being treated disrespectfully. I have been to school board meetings, met with parent advocates across this country. I I did a tour across the country in the last six weeks. And what they're frustrated about is the transportation crisis we have. We can't get kids on reliable buses to get them into classrooms. We have COVID-19 quarantine protocols that are insane. Some kids have test and stay. Some kids stay home for two days, some days 14 And we have kids who are in a social emotional crisis after a period of isolation. These schools just got hundreds of billions of dollars and we're not seeing it actually used in the ways that parents and families have asked them to use it. So we're frustrated and we're not going to take it lying down. I see. And Jake, I just just to to clear up any sort of, um, you know, false notions here. This is not just happening in red states. This is happening all over the place. You mentioned New Jersey in my state, Connecticut, 
We had local elections in my town. They were mostly framed around the issues of education. They might be disparate and different, um, different issues, but education is still a huge issue. And when it looks like Democrats are either taking their voters for granted or talking over them or trying to impose, um, you know, federal will over parents, that's never, ever going to go well. So as, yeah. as, I, I, go ahead. I was just going to say at the at the end, when people wonder about like, oh, the momentum in this race changed in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe's comment at the debate, which I see mentioned, was one of those things. And then the letter to the to the DOJ that mentioned parents and talked about them in this hostile way that, frankly, parents had felt that way being treated by their public servants. And it added gasoline to this fire of parents being angry about the entire year. Uh, and it's just important to remember that schools closed for a year, public schools closed for a year while private schools were operating, while other schools in other states were operating, is historically anomalous. It's anomalous on the world stage. Children here were, un- were not served well. Parents were mistreated in many cases with sometimes, uh, sometimes school boards saying, like, you just want your babysitters back. And they wanted to be heard. They often couldn't be heard because they had virtual meetings that they would be uh, you know, have limited speaking time in. And so the ballot box turned out to be the place that they were heard. And by the way, Terry McAuliffe, in his wisdom, decided to bring Randy Weingarten, head of a national teacher's ah. union, to the state of Virginia as his closer when she's literally the closer of the schools for a year. And she fought tooth and nail to keep them closed. Parents were ticked and they had a right to be. So, Carrie, let me ask you, Democratic Congressman uh, Donald uh, McEachin, who represents the Richmond area of Virginia, he told The New York Times this, quote, You cannot tell a group of people who have had for 18 months or so to have to homeschool their children that their opinion about their children's education doesn't matter. I do think that we as a party need to acknowledge that people have been through a lot in the last 18 months. Carrie, this increased focus on education, is it too late for Democrats? Is it too late for school boards? Or do you think that this could be a moment where people learn from an experience? Well, I think this is going to be an incredible moment of reckoning because for the past 18 months, parents have been the co-facilitators of education. And frankly, we were horrified by what was a catastrophic failure of the entire system in our living rooms. And the idea that you want to say to parents across this country, well, just ignore that. Ignore the fact that your kid is now in third, fourth, fifth grade and cannot read, uh, has, has no idea what they're doing in math. Don't worry about it. We've got it from here. When quite clearly you did not have it over a period of 18 months. I, I mean, you're, you're seriously underestimating the crisis of confidence that parents and families now have in our entire public education system. And so when Democrats are turning around and saying, well, you know, we don't want to hear from you. We don't want to hear your concerns. We're your constituents. We're the people who actually put you into office. It is incredibly tone deaf. S.E., take a listen to what progressive uh, chair Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal told CNN last night about all of this. We have to pay attention to local politics. And um, I think that Democrats are the party of parents, not Republicans. Um, we are the ones that are looking to pass child universal child care, universal pre-K, to cut prescription drug costs. And as soon as we get that done, I think people will see that. Essie, what do you think? Uh, yeah, this is a new Democratic message. I first heard my, my friend and former co- Crossfire colleague Stephanie Cutter say this on another network a couple nights ago. And, and she said, we cannot let the GOP become the party of parents. And that's what 
that's the the framing that this is sort of setting up. And so I think Democrats realize just how high the stakes are for this. If Republicans get to win on this issue, which cuts across issues of education and health and safety, um, this is eating into a huge, huge uh, piece of the pie. And women, to some extent, are still swing voters. I think Virginia and even as close as New Jersey was made that very clear. Democrats should be worried. And Mary Catherine, I just want to make sure everyone understands nobody is calling for violence or threats against teachers. Nobody wants teachers to get sick. Nobody wants the schools to be unsafe for teachers to learn at. But there has just been a very very tangible frustration for at least a year. And I've seen a lot of it in Virginia, uh, just as living in D.C. and and you hear it, uh, about the lack of empathy towards the children that has been expressed. Yeah, no, there was there was just a I mean, really almost a hostility towards those who were arguing that it was safe to go back. And in fact, in somewhere like Fairfax and they slap in the face where uh, teachers uh, advocated for by the unions were allowed to jump the line and get their vaccines early, which all the parents were like, great, then we can get school back. And then they declined to go back to school. So that's the kind of dynamic that you're looking at while you have people at home teaching their kids. Many of them, I think the the numbers are astounding for women who left the workforce, partly because they have to be home and facilitating this. I call it Zoom butlering, where you have to bring everything to your child while they're on Zoom uh, and hit all their buttons for them. This was not acceptable as a public service. This is the very basic stuff that your city and county should offer to you. And when you address them with your grievances, they shouldn't be telling you that you just want your brunch and your babysitters back, which is far often... The, far too often the message that parents got, and that is why they were mad. Democrats can ignore... Democrats these, have dig themselves a hole in this. Yeah, Democrats can ignore these three women on my, on my show right now. They can if they want, at their peril. Thanks all for being here. Appreciate it. Quote, Thanks. devastating. That's how the mother of Ahmaud Arbery is reacting to the jury selection as three men face murder charges. Stay with us. In our national lead, protests are underway in Georgia right now amid growing outrage after a nearly all-white jury was selected in the trial of the three white men accused of murdering Ahmad Arbery, an unarmed 25-year-old black man shot and killed while jogging last year. Of the 16 total jurors picked, including four alternates, only one black juror will hear the case. Prosecutors accuse the defense of deliberately striking prospective black jurors A charge that the judge appears to agree with, but he said he will seat the panel anyway. Arbery's mother reacted to the jury selection process outside of court yesterday. I was very shocked that we only had one black African-American man. I mean, that was devastating. As CNN's Martin Savage reports for us now, race is front and center in this highly contentious case as opening statements begin tomorrow. Outside the courthouse in Brunswick, Georgia, reaction to the overwhelmingly white jury ranges from disappointment to outrage. No justice! No Eleven white jurors and one African-American will decide the fate of the three white men accused of killing the 25-year-old black man Ahmad Arbery while he was out jogging. The jury chosen at the end of a grueling two-and-a-half-week selection process that had originally summoned a 1,000 residents drawn from a county where a quarter of the population is black. The revelation immediately drawing a motion from the prosecution suggesting the defense's decision to remove eight African-Americans from jury consideration was based solely on race. So African-American jurors made up one-quarter of 
the jury panel. But the actual jury that was selected has only one African-American male on it. Defense attorneys vehemently denied that, arguing their decisions to strike black potential jurors were based on what they called race-neutral reasons, saying they removed them because they didn't believe they'd be impartial. Then the judge spoke, at first seeming to side with the prosecution. Uh, this court has found that there appears to be uh, intentional uh, discrimination. But ultimately ruling based on the defense's statements, the case could go forward with the selected jurors. They've been able to explain to the court why separate from race those individuals were in fact struck from the panel. Defense attorneys who only 24 hours earlier have been complaining how the potential jury pool did not sufficiently reflect the defendants in the case, now saying they were satisfied with the 12 jurors and four alternates. We're very pleased that we have been able to select now 16 members of this community. The case has been racially charged from the start, with the three white men accused of pursuing and killing a young black man jogging through their neighborhood in 2020, suspecting that he had committed a crime. An armed Gregory McMichael and his son Travis chased an unarmed 25-year-old Arbery in a truck, eventually confronting him. In the resulting struggle, prosecutors say Travis McMichael shot Arbery three times with a shotgun. Their neighbor, William Bryan, authorities say, joining the pursuit, recording the incident on his cell phone. It wasn't until two months after the shooting, when the video was made public, that the men were arrested. All three have pleaded not guilty to multiple state charges, including felony murder. And all day long, Jake, the court has been hearing last-minute arguments that have been made on the part of both the defense and the prosecution, fine-tuning the kind of evidence that that jury will finally get to hear. The judge is still confident. Opening statements tomorrow morning. Jake. All right, Martin Savage, thanks so much. New alarming details about how a drone apparently targeted part of the U.S. electric grid. Stay with us. Some disturbing news in our tech lead now. New details about an apparent plot targeting the nation's power grid. A drone that crashed was likely targeting a Pennsylvania power substation. That's according to a joint intelligence bulletin obtained by CNN. No damage was done to the substation, thankfully. But authorities are not sure who is responsible. And as CNN's Alex Marquardt reports, officials are increasingly concerned about the threat that drones pose to critical infrastructure. The threats to the most critical parts of U.S. infrastructure are only growing with advances in technology, from the ever-present fears of cyber attacks to potentially devastating physical attacks, highlighted by an apparent attack at a Pennsylvania power station, reported in an intelligence bulletin just obtained by CNN. It says that in July 2020, a small, modified drone, which crashed, was likely intended to disrupt operations by creating a short circuit to cause damage to transformers or distribution lines. The intelligence report says that the drone did no harm, but that it's the first known instance of an unmanned aircraft system likely being used to attempt to deliberately damage energy infrastructure in the United States. We have to keep in mind that these physical threats, such as this drone attack, are very, very real. And with the rise of domestic extremism and, and other national, foreign national types of involvement, you know, I think we can only expect these types of threats to rise. The drone was a simple, very popular consumer model. There were two long pieces of rope attached to it, along with thick copper wire. 
The camera and other identifiers were removed, indicating that the operator was trying to hide their identity and was probably flying it with line of sight near the power substation. A successful attack could result in widespread regional loss of power. Some substations would probably feed a few hundred people, whereas uh, other substations, you know, it could be uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands of households. It just depends on where it is within the power grid itself. This joint intelligence report goes on to detail numerous other incidents over the past few years in which drones were flying over critical energy infrastructure sites for unknown reasons. Like, Jake, back in 2017 in California, a drone flew into power lines, knocking out power for three hours for some 1,600 people. It's believed that most of these incidents are not malicious, but they are not ruling that out. And they say that they do believe that these illicit drone incidents around these critical sites will only grow in the coming years. All right, Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. Is President Biden out of the loop or just not keeping his promise? The accusation from the head of a powerful group that's ahead. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, will it send a message? A few unruly airline passengers will face severe consequences for their behavior, partly as a warning to fend off future offenses. Plus, Longtime Hillary Clinton aide Huma Abedin opens up and tells her story. She will join us live. And leading this hour, get it to my desk. That's President Joe Biden's message to Democrats again as they continue to wrestle over the key elements of his agenda. Still, sources tell CNN that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said earlier today in a closed-door meeting with Democrats that the hope is to vote on the social spending bill tonight and then hold a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure plan tomorrow. But haven't we all seen this movie before? Let's get right to CNN's Manu Raju. He's on Capitol Hill. Manu, it's going on 5 o'clock. Does there seem to be momentum from Democrats towards a vote tonight on the Build Back Better Act? Uh, Jake, it looks less and less likely that the vote will actually happen tonight, in large part because moderate Democrats in particular simply are just not ready to vote for this plan. The revised version of this bill, more than 2,100 pages, was released just uh, yesterday, and a number of the members are still processing it, going through it, asking for more information. And there are still some outstanding issues, immigration being one of them, how to deal with state and local tax deductions, another. So this sweeping plan may have to wait even longer for a vote. Now, this comes as there are still questions about when that bipartisan infrastructure bill also may come up for a vote. A lot of those moderates have been demanding votes on that. Nancy Pelosi initially had promised a vote at the end of September for that, but it still has not gotten a vote. And that is contributing to the lack of trust, according to moderate Democratic congressmen who talked to me about this earlier today. Now, at the same time, Jake, there's still questions that once this larger bill, if it does get out of the House, and it's still a question because Pelosi can only afford to lose three votes. If that does get out of the House, then it will go over to the Senate. And at that point, Joe Manchin in particular has called for a number of changes, including getting rid of paid family leave as part of this proposal that Nancy Pelosi added back in, four weeks of leave. And the demands by Manchin to pare back this bill has caused a lot of tension among liberals, including Raul Grijalva, who told me this earlier today. What I find offensive, okay, is the inordinate amount of power that one or two individuals will have in this question. For them to try to shift that responsibility to someone else when they've allowed, uh, they haven't done their part of the lifting, uh, I find offensive. 
So Pelosi on the floor was working over a number of the moderate Democrats, talking to them about some of their issues, trying to see if there can be a vote. And Jake, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer told me earlier that perhaps the House could even be in through this weekend to try to force this, these two issues through, both the larger bill and the infrastructure bill. So this is still very fluid. And can they get the votes? Still an open question on that larger bill. But behind the scenes, the leadership is working it hard. Jake. Manu Raj, you're on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan. She's one of nine deputy whips on the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, Congresswoman, here the Democrats go again. You're signaling again. You're on the verge of a deal. A vote's pending. But this time, a vote on the Build Back Better Act might come first, although now we're hearing that moderates are balking. The Progressive Caucus has been adamant. Both bills must be brought to the floor together. Where are we now? What's going to happen? So first of all, I was in that caucus uh, for, and I did not hear Nancy Pelosi say there will be a vote tonight. And we got enough misinformation out there. I think people want to have these votes as soon as we can, and we will. And I will tell you, Jake, we will not leave for that we will be here until we get these bills done. Be it over the weekend, be it over the weekend. But we, it is time to land this plane. We will get it done, and we will get it done. I think it, uh, the, uh, they may still try to do a rule tonight. Their rules committee is meeting, is going to go back in. We've had a, a very long series of votes. Uh, but I do believe that people are working very hard. You know, it's kind of, I'm standing uh, with you today in front of the Will Rogers statue which Will Rogers said to us that people with weak stomachs shouldn't watch sausage or laws being made. We are in the last stages of laws and sausage being made, and it's, it's going to get done. We are going to get both of these bills passed. Will Rogers also said, I don't, I'm not a member of an organized party, I'm a Democrat, and I have to say the perceived uh, inability of Democrats to get anything done Uh, might have cost you a lot of races on Tuesday night when Democrats got shellacked. I mean, is there any regret uh, by any House Democrats uh, about what happened Tuesday night and the role that all this back and forth might have caused? I mean, you could have had months ago an infrastructure bill signed into law. So, you know what I'm going to say to you? We got to look forward. And I take a message from Tuesday it's time for action. The American people are saying, get it done. So we're going to get it done. Uh, I, I do, I share, you played the, the Natural Resources Committee's chagrin a little earlier on the show. I think a lot of people, therefore, I'm, I am part of a body that has 435 members that each represent a district and need to have their voices heard in the issues that they care about. I think two senators have had a disproportionate impact on this system. It's been very important that the leadership of this House make sure that every member has the opportunity to represent their districts, their people. I'm a member of both problem solvers and the progressive caucus i believe in working across the aisle i have been working with everybody across the aisle we've had lots of discussions compromise is not a dirty word it is time to get that common ground and pass two of the most important pieces of legislation we've seen in this country in decades don't you think that if the bipartisan infrastructure bill had been law had been signed into law months ago and People, voters in New Jersey and Virginia and elsewhere had been able to see, you know, shovels going into the ground and construction projects beginning and broadband promises coming to life that that your party might have fared better on Tuesday. 
You know, it, it, who, we are where we are. The fact of the matter is, I don't know, because I know that we have done an enormous amount of work on the American Recovery Plan. Voted the first bill almost a year ago. We've had several, and people uh, know that we've made a difference, but they're forgetting about that. One of the things that we have to do is act, and then go out, to, out there and make sure people know what we are doing and the changes that are coming to their life because of what we've done. And there are things in this bill that have to, that are going to, I mean, Inflation is a real issue. I know that. But when we pass this bill, it's going to have many things in it that are going to address the inflation that we are looking at. And we've got to tell people why it's making the difference and the difference it's making. When children start to see, when we start to see universal pre-K for our children and that we're going to help six million children, people are going to be happy at that. When we fix our roads and bridges, uh, like we're going to, when we get the lead out of every pipe in America, yeah, there are things in this bill that need to get done and we're going to look forward and make sure the American people know what we have done. Yeah, you got to do it first, though. We, and we will. I'm telling you, Jake. Now, I don't know what day we're leaving here, but we're not leaving here. And it'll be the next few days until both of these bills are done and they will get done. OK, Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Coming up next, one powerful group accuses President Biden of being out of the loop after Biden denies his administration will pay money to families that were separated at the border. Plus... I honestly feel like I'm just trapped in a body that doesn't function normally anymore. Long, long after being infected with COVID, some Americans are still suffering debilitating symptoms. Stay with us. We are back with our politics lead, the White House today, trying to, shall we say, clarify a comment President Biden made yesterday. The president had been asked about a Wall Street Journal report that the Biden administration was considering payments to the tune of $450,000 for families separated at the border under the Trump administration's so-called zero-tolerance policy. Here's the exchange. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report? Yeah. Okay. So $450,000 $450, per person. Is that what you're saying? that was separated from a family member at the border under, under the last administration. That's not going to happen. One important thing we want to note, the group Physicians for Human Rights has found that the practice of family separation is tantamount to torture with profound health ramifications for both parent and child. CNN's Daniel Dale joins us live with the fact checking. Daniel, what's going on with these reports uh, of these payments? This would be, uh, I guess, a, a settlement so that there isn't a lawsuit was the Wall Street Journal report that, that Peter Ducey was asking about, is, is it garbage or not? Jake, this is one of these cases where the president is quite imprecise and leaves it to his staff and us to be the precise ones. So, so here are the true facts. The Wall Street Journal was correct not reporting garbage when it reported that the Biden administration is in discussions to settle lawsuits brought on behalf of families affected by the family separation policy. And the Wall Street Journal was correct in reporting that these settlement discussions include talks of possible financial compensation. In fact, White House Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said today at the White House brief that President Biden is comfortable with financial compensation as long as it ends up saving taxpayers money and helps people turn the page from the horrors of the Trump days. 
So why did President Biden talk about garbage, saying this report was garbage? Well, Jean-Pierre said he was referring specifically to that $450,000 amount the Wall Street Journal cited. Now, as a fact checker, I'm very skeptical of these day after explanations, clarifications that the White House and other politicians offer. In this case, I think it's plausible. If you listen to that exchange between the president and Ducey, uh, he did seem to be referring specifically to the 450000 but I don't think he was very clear about it. I think he should have been clear. Now, what amount does the president feel comfortable with, if not 450000 Karine Jean-Pierre would not say today. What we do know is that after the president's remarks on Wednesday in public, the Department of Justice communicated to people involved in these negotiations, including the American Civil Liberties Union, that the amount, the final amount of the settlement, Jake, had to be lower than 450000 that that amount was simply too high. Thank you, Daniel Dale. I appreciate it. Also in our politics lead, CNN projected last night New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, the Democrat, has eked out a victory over his Republican opponent, Jack Cittarelli. There are still some ballots that have not been counted, and Cittarelli has yet to concede the race, which was far closer than many Democrats and pollsters had assumed. Republicans and Democrats alike now trying to recalibrate their strategies for next year's crucial midterm elections. Let's talk about it with my August panel at Kristen Solti-Sanderson. COVID was a big issue in that race in New Jersey. Uh, Phil Murphy hammered his opponent on Republican opposition to, to masks and vaccine mandates. Was that effective at the end of the day? I think when it comes to both New Jersey and Virginia, you had a political environment that was just toxic for Democrats. And so we can look at Virginia and say an issue like education played a big role or look at New Jersey and say an issue like COVID played a big role. I think it's a little bit of all of the above. The economy is not feeling great to many Americans. They're not so convinced that Biden's agenda is what they're looking for or that his leadership is so great. And they're taking it out at the ballot box on these Democratic politicians who are running, plain and simple. What is the solution? You're a Democrat. What's the solution for your party? This, you know, we go through this. It's, a, it's, a, it's very cyclical. The right. pendulum swings. And, uh, you know, I, I've, there are lessons to be learned. There are. What are the lessons you want your party to learn? First of all, get freaking something done on the Hill, right? So we can actually talk about oh, what Oh, I was just should. assured something's going to oh, happen. Yes, I heard. <laughs> <laughs> and let's believe her. Yeah. Uh, but once that happens, Jake, we have, to, we have to translate that so that people understand what that is. We can't continue to call it the reconciliation bill. We can't even continue to call it the infrastructure bill. People don't really know what that means. So we need to actually talk about what it is. What is that money for? I'm a single mom. I'm going to be able to go to work and, and have my kids being taken care of. I'm going to have a child ta tax credit. I'm going to be able to take care of my abuela, who I can't leave home right now by herself. And so these are the things that I think we just really need to talk about. We need to message a lot better about what it is that we're doing for people. We all know that politics, and I think this is what happened in Virginia, New Jersey, a lot of it is, what have you done for me lately? And voters didn't feel like Democrats, after they had given them their vote and their confidence one year ago, had done all that much for them. We have to prove that we can pass things and that those things will actually feel to these voters like we are doing something for them. Uh, Eva McKenna, you covered uh, Youngkin. Uh, you did a great job uh, covering him. And one of the things that's interesting is, yes, there was red meat for the base. And I could understand why some people would find some of the politics to be dog whistle politics. But... It seems to me like Glenn Youngkin, the winner, the governor-elect, he talked about a lot more than that, right? I mean, why do you think he won? 
He did a lot of things went, went right for him. It, he was the right candidate at the right moment, at the right time. He had unlimited funds. That also helped. Oh, yeah, he's super rich. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so we are going to see Republicans across the country try to replicate uh, this uh, playbook. And, and it's not going to be easy because it is not only the campaign he ran. He's a very disciplined campaigner. Uh, he... Uh, his, his staff mostly kept him away from doing um, substantive, sort of aggressive interviews. He stuck to the script out on the campaign trail. Very few times did he deviate from his message. Um, so that is hard to replicate, right? Not everyone asked And the Trump factor also, he was able to not diss Trump, but right. keep him at arm's length. Yes, and we haven't seen any Republican across the country be able to effectively do that. Trump wants to be involved in everything. And he did try to insert himself Mm -hmm. into this race Mm -hmm. as much as possible, but not in a way that proved toxic to Youngkin. So, and and speaking of Virginia, uh, Congresswoman uh, Abigail Spanberger, she's a a frontline Democrat. She's in a swing district. I think she won by two points. Uh, And she's, I mean, she's vulnerable, uh, especially in in a big Republican year, which seems to be likely in 2022. She has a message for President Biden and her fellow Democrats in The New York Times. She said, quote, nobody elected Biden to be FDR, meaning big sweeping government programs. They elected him to be normal and stop the chaos. Uh, She's suggesting there that these big sweeping multi-trillion dollar bills actually are not what voters want. I mean, I would argue if that is the case, to be normal and not have chaos, that's kind of what he's done to date. And yet you have devastating losses for Democrats, right, yesterday. So I don't know that that's entirely the message. I mean, I'm convinced that Virginia had a lot of nuanced, distinct factors. Some of this is Yunkin was really the man who led a better campaign. Some of this, you know, you spend time out in Virginia and and Democrats alone were bored, Mm -hmm. uninspired by Terry McAuliffe. They'd be at his campaign rallies and say, this isn't the guy I wanted. And so there is, I think, some degree of perhaps overanalyzing. I know we all want to take lessons from Virginia and I get it because it's the big off year election. But I also think there are distinct things that happened in that governor's race that is tied to the two men. Who and we also yeah. we had we talked to the moms uh, earlier uh, in the show and there was education was a big issue. Yes, and it it's was. not just critical race theory and how race is taught, although that certainly was part of it. Yeah. It's parents who want their kids to be back in school and have mm-hmm. been so frustrated. Right. I mean, it's, wasn't that a big issue? Well, there's, there's a lot of things that fall under mm-hmm. the umbrella of education. Right. And it's whether you're frustrated about COVID, you can be frustrated about the way schools have handled it, either that they didn't open fast enough, that they're unclear in their communication to parents. They might be frustrated that they think the school district is focused on the wrong things. You had a number of districts have really heated debates about, do we rename this school that's currently named after Thomas Jefferson or George Mason? If you're a parent who just wants your kid not to be on Zoom anymore, does that seem like the wrong focus for the school board? That's not critical race theory, but it is sort of the intersection of the issues of social justice and education. And you've also got public safety. Youngkin kept airing ads in the D.C market showing footage of fights breaking out in schools and saying it's the Democrats who took police officers and school resource officers out of schools. Mm. I'll put them back. So from public safety to COVID and more, lots of things all fall under this umbrella of education, which gave, I think, Republicans a pretty big opportunity. And Republicans know that opportunity might exist in 2022. You've already had Kevin McCarthy come out and say, Republicans are going to put forward a parent's bill of rights. (laughs) This is a message they're going to hit on for the next 12 months for sure. I just want to say one 
quick thing about Congresswoman uh, Spanberger's comments. I think Democrats have to be careful, though. They can't sort of contort themselves so much in a way to appease to moderates, uh, independents, these mystery yeah. voters I, that they're yes. looking for, in a way that um, that progressives become disillusioned because they water themselves down so much. And then the the base voters, the progressive voters, feel alienated. I mean, right. the youth so, voter turnout was down, it looks like, yes. in Virginia. I mean, that is, to your point, young people were not, an, you know, they were not, not inspired, inspired at all. At all by it, and that's frankly why Youngkin won. I mean, the electorate was a lot wider, a lot older, and yeah. a lot more Republican. Republicans were the ones who were inspired. So I agree with you. I think if we do get this passed, we can talk about what it is. And our the, the base voters, and I don't think we need to continue to call them all our base voters because they've become persuadable now, especially the Latino voters, which we can talk about in, in another segment. But on education, that's another reason why Phil Murphy won, because he actually led his, uh, his opponent on education. And Terry McAuliffe stepped in it with that comment about not wanting parents to be the ones who decide what is taught in schools. Now, of course, Youngkin ran with it. He, he what he said, Terry said is actually not what Terry said, but then they were able to use this against him. And when you are a parent and you have been essentially your child's teacher for a year and a half, <laughs> you don't want to hear that you should not be involved in, in your child's education. I mean, yes, it was taken. It was taken somewhat out of context. But by the same token, he's a politician. And you know that when you have to speak precisely and Absolutely. the idea. Yes, he was talking about whether yes. or not parents can take books. Out of a library, right? right? That, that's what he was talking about. Right. But still, just the words, yeah. parents shouldn't be involved in education. That's right. I mean, <laughs> and he could have cleaned it up, and he didn't. He doubled down a couple of times after that. And I think that was the big mistake, the big pothole that he was not able to get out of. I've seen a lot of Democrats and liberals on social media basically saying that what happened was Glenn Youngkin is a racist, and all of the Virginia voters that voted for him are racist. And again, there, there were certainly racial tropes. There were certainly, uh, there were certainly elements of the campaign that I thought were troubling. But I don't think that that is accurate, and I don't think it's fair to the voters or to Glenn Youngkin, for that matter. Well, that criticism doesn't tell the whole story. You know, right. I was at these rallies and I saw Chinese Americans who were worried that Democrats were moving in the direction of socialism. He had uh, faith leaders for Youngkin, and I met um, black uh, women who are uncomfortable with. Uh, the conversation around transgender rights. So, you know, not to mention the new lieutenant governor. Yes. So, yeah. So I think it, it's much more nuanced when you attend these rallies. Uh, the campaign did a good job. I think they had like 14 coalitions, Salvadorians for Yunkin, I think was among them. So they left no stone unturned in trying to appeal to every every everyone that they could. I mean, that's also, I think, going to be a troubling argument for Democrats heading into next year's midterms if the argument is, is that every candidate that Democrats lose to is arguably racist or dipped into racism, which, you know, I'm not going to say it he wasn't happens. winking and nodding. Sure. But <laughs> the, the argument is, did voters vote for him for those reasons or were they perhaps willing to overlook some of it? And I think those are two different I think some, some of them did. I think some, some did. of them I did. Mean, that's sure. what we have to be clear about. Yeah, no, look, absolutely, absolutely. But it's, you know, just saying... Two million racists. No, just, you know, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's not. And if that's, that's not. By the way, that's, that's, not, that's, tough, not, yeah. that's not a ticket, as you know. That's not a ticket to success in twenty twenty. It is. Yeah. Not. Thanks to one and all. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, join me tomorrow night for a new CNN special report: Trumping Democracy and American Coup. Key Republican officials share never heard before details about how close American democracy came to crumbling. That's tomorrow night at nine p.m. Coming up a year after infection, long-term COVID symptoms are keeping some Americans out of work, including one nursing director who oversaw hundreds of patients. 
losing that job and losing that part of me has been really hard. In our money lead, a disturbing trend emerging due to the coronavirus pandemic, doctors at the Mayo Clinic estimate that more than one million Americans are out of work right now because of long-haul COVID symptoms. Those range from headaches to exhaustion to brain fog and plague some patients more than a year after they caught the virus. CNN's Gabe Cohen talked to some of these long haulers about the struggle to adjust to their new realities. Lori Bedell feels trapped inside her Pittsburgh home and her ailing body. I feel like I've lost the life that I had. It's been nearly a year since she and her family contracted COVID. Her father died. Today, she's still battling post-COVID syndrome, a mysterious long-term condition plaguing some COVID patients. Once perfectly healthy, she now keeps this long list of symptoms, like severe fatigue, brain fog, and constant pain. I literally can't even leave my house by myself. She needs a walker just to get the mail. How are you feeling now? A little winded. Could you even work right now? No. Um, I barely function. Before COVID, Lori was the nursing director for a home health agency, but she hasn't worked since January. After using up her paid time off, she was laid off. Sorry. Um, losing that job and losing that part of me has been really hard. I've become one of the patients that I cared for. Lori's case is severe, but she's not alone. Unfortunately, it's quite alarming. Dr. Greg Van Nishkashorn is seeing this constantly. Work issues have been one of the most significant problems we've encountered in our patient population. His team at the Mayo Clinic treats and studies post-COVID syndrome. Looking at data from their clinic and several other studies, they've noticed a troubling trend. We estimate that approximately 1.3 million individuals are out of work right now due to long-haul COVID symptoms. He says that could mean more than a million Americans out of the labor force as the country deals with a worker shortage and more than 10 million open jobs as of August. I think that's entirely plausible. Mark Zandi is chief economist of Moody's Analytics. He says the doctor's estimate makes sense. Long COVID is increasingly a significant headwind to the labor market getting back to normal for businesses to get their business operations up and running and, you know, ultimately for the broader economy to kick into high gear. Could this be an overestimate? Absolutely, but it also could be an underestimate. Most of the long haulers they're studying have well-paying jobs and good insurance. My fear is that there are individuals out there who are suffering severely from this condition, but they simply can't take time off of work to go get care. Jennifer Hobbs is a preschool teacher in Medford, Oregon, who suffered long-haul symptoms for a year, from severe fatigue to hair loss. I've had a headache every single day for a year. But she returned to her classroom, needing the income and health insurance. It was nearly impossible for me to think about leaving. I don't know how I do it. I just make it through the day. The U.S. government recognizes long COVID as a disability, and patients can apply for assistance. But it can take months, and some long haulers say they've been denied. It's been a catastrophe for us. Lori Bedell just applied for disability and is awaiting an answer. She and her husband have used up their savings and retirement funds just to pay the bills. Honestly, I'm terrified that I'm never going to be able to go back to work. 
Now, many of the long haulers these clinics are studying are, are some of the more severe cases. And so these doctors acknowledge that it is hard at this point to say exactly how many of these patients are out of work. But this latest estimate, well, it reflects the concern from doctors about these long-term neurological problems that their patients are facing. Not just the ones who have left their jobs, but also, Jake, the ones who may be suffering in silence at work. All right, Gabe Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Here to discuss this is Dr. Chris Burnell. She's a public health physician and a fellow at the American College of Preventive Medicine. Uh, Dr. Purnell, is there any way to treat long-haul COVID symptoms? Jake, there's a variability in what people who have long COVID experience. I can tell you personally, my oldest sister who had coronavirus and had long COVID, it took her approximately 10 months to be able to return to some semblance of her baseline. Um, We know that because either people's immune systems are not turning off or the inflammatory process is starting to attack them, or they have end organ damage from the infection itself, you can see a variety of symptoms, whether those are neurological, cardiac in nature, or even some mental and behavioral health conditions. So there isn't one consensus treatment that is available, but a multiplicity of options that providers have to consider. Well, we keep hearing about the, these miracle treatments like monoclonal antibodies and the like. It, that doesn't necessarily work with those long haulers? There's so much variability in the data right now, Jake, for us to say that monoclonal antibodies are going to work in every person. It depends on what the actual mechanism of long COVID is. Again, is that an inflammatory process where the immune system hasn't turned off Or is that an inflammatory process where the immune system is starting to attack um, the cells of the body or the result of organ damage? So we can't point to monoclonal antibodies as a concise, cohesive, and comprehensive solution to a a problem that just has too much variability. Some of these patients, as you know, say it's been more than a year since their original COVID diagnosis. Could the symptoms last for the rest of their lives? It's possible, right? Uh, Again, understanding the mechanism is going to be important. What we do know is that a third of patients or more can experience long COVID. What that experience is does have variability in the length of the time. Um, Studies are currently being done so that we can learn more. Unfortunately, that is just too much that we don't know. And because of that, the best way to prevent long COVID is to prevent infection with coronavirus in the first place. And it's not just adults, right? Kids also could experience no they can't no, no, they can. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just adults. Um, if you look at the data coming out of the UK, um, the UK said anywhere from roughly around 13 percent of children in the two to 11 age category and much as 15 percent of those who are 12 to 16 have experienced bouts of long COVID. So meaning in symptoms anywhere from five weeks after infection, kids can have neurological impacts. That's why it's important, especially with five to 11 year olds now eligible for the vaccination to go out and get vaccinated. My niece, Kaya, the last person in our immediate family not to get vaccinated, just got her first dose yesterday. That's great. That must be that must be a big relief for your family. And yes, everyone out there, please get vaccinated. Dr. Chris Purnell, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Behind the scenes, no more. Next, Homa Abedin joins me live as she opens up about her life. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Friday, October 28th, 2016, the letter to Congress that rocked the 2016 election. Former FBI Director James Comey 
revealing that emails between Hillary Clinton and her longtime aide, Homa Abedin, were found on a laptop that belonged to Abedin's then-husband, Anthony Weiner. That discovery in an investigation into Weiner sexting with a minor reopened the FBI's Hillary Clinton email investigation. And that saga may have furthered planted seeds of doubt in voters already on the fence about trusting Clinton. Who knows the effect? Either way, 11 days later, Donald J. Trump won the election. Fast forward five years, Homa Abedin, the woman who hit send uh, when it came to those emails, writes now, quote, I have slowly come to accept that I am not the sole cause of the 2016 election loss. One man's decision to play God forever changed the course of history. It should not be my burden to carry the rest of my life, unquote. She is out with a brand new book called Both and A Life in Many Worlds. It is uh, a lovely book. Homa Abedin joins me now. I didn't know you were such a, a, a good writer. Well, thank you, Jake. I'm happy to be on your show, and I'm happy to hear that I really enjoyed the writing process. It was great therapy for me. Um, let me start with the uh, elephant in the room about Comey. Uh, for a long time, Comey was a daily nightmare for you. Uh, and what happened in 2016, you argue, should be Comey's burden to bury, not yours. But do you believe that saga did change the outcome of the 2016 race? Well, first of all, Jake, thank you for, you know, mentioning a chapter in my book. I I do have an entire chapter called Elephant in the Room. Uh, It is something I lived with for a long time. This the trauma, the shock, the um, the challenges of uh, having to deal with that moment and all the years leading up to that moment. But I do I think that one thing, you know, changed the course of the election. No. But do I think it, you know, was a factor in her loss, uh, and obviously I do. I think it's now documented fact um, that it did, and that was an extremely hard um, moment and decision for me to have to deal with in the aftermath of the election. And I write about it extensively in my book. Um, the book is—it's um, not just about that. Obviously, it's about your whole life. It's a memoir, right. um, and uh, there's a lot of details about your childhood and your parents that I did not know. You wrote extensively about being uh, raised Muslim, spending your early years in Saudi Arabia where most women, um, even now, cover their heads and faces in public. Uh, you, you write about it non-judgmentally in the book, just the, about the experience of uh, the religious police and, and the like, uh, and the, the experience of girls and women being harassed, the experience of girls and women having to cover their, their bodies when they, go, when they left the home. But I, I, one thing I wondered when reading it was, looking at it now, as someone who has traveled the world calling for women's rights as a, as a strong, independent woman, how do you feel about those religious rules? Well, for me, you know, when my parents, as you said, I mean, we were an immigrant family coming to this country. My father came from India, my mom from Pakistan. For them, education was a religion. They were Fulbright scholars. They met at the University of Pennsylvania. I was born in Michigan. We moved to Saudi Arabia when I was two. And the reason, and I do write extensively about this in the book, I open the book with a letter that I found in my father's files after um, he passed away, is we moved to Saudi Arabia because my father was diagnosed essentially with a terminal illness um, when I was two. And they moved to Saudi Arabia at a time when there were new educational institutions opening and there was a tremendous opportunity uh, for foreign nationals like my parents. And they went and they taught. They were both academics. And I was raised in my house, my home. My parents were all about expanding our minds. And yes, we did live in a restrictive society. For me, you know, I opened the book about uh, Balad in Saudi Arabia, you know, growing up and sort of shopping in the old city. It was that cultural, social, the, we were, uh, you know, my practicing Muslim family. For us, you know, I can only talk about my own experience because 
I only have these really fond, wonderful memories of growing up there. And I was lucky to have parents who said, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. All we require is that you be educated. And that's why I write extensively about what it was like um, uh, to grow up and live there. And and for me, those are those are really wonderful memories. And some of our family friends are still there. And I try to go back and visit as often as I can. You write candidly about the highs and lows uh, in your now uh, estranged relationship with Anthony Weiner, his bouts of of betrayal and lies. After his prison release, you wrote about an episode in 2019 when The New York Post was about to publish Yet another photograph of him with a woman, not you. And you write, quote, I had fallen to the lowest point I'd ever experienced on my way home from work one night. I'd contemplated contemplated for a brief moment stepping off a subway platform. The very fact that I thought it, even if it was for only a second, terrified me. It's a very candid admission. Um, And I wonder what you would say now to any woman, any person um, who might be in such a dark place or experience such a dark moment anytime soon. Well, Jake, for me, the reason I chose to share my full truth, and I did, I mean, I know for much of my adult life, certainly in the last 10 years, when people look at me from the outside, they'll say, what is wrong with her and what is she thinking? And it is why in the book, I write extensively that why I did certain things, why I chose to make the decisions that I made. When Anthony's first you know, story broke, I was carrying his child. I was not even 12 weeks pregnant. And by the time I got to 2019, sort of on the other side of the election, the outcome of the le- election obviously was devastating. Not having, you know, I, I came from a, you know, a club that is called Hillary Land. It's a very supportive environment. Uh, working for Hillary Clinton and all of my friends and colleagues, we'd kind of all disbanded. And I had gone to a very, very dark place. I had not understood the mental health challenges that Anthony, the addiction that, you know, really he was struggling with. We were kind of in a bunker together for years. And that day on the subway, I mean, I wrote about that, um, that episode because for somebody who is um, a strong believer in her faith, I'm a practicing Muslim, the idea that I even thought it reminded me or told me it was a wake-up call, like I needed help. And I got help. I needed help. I got help. I was on the other side. I am on the other side now. And I'm glad for that. And I think, you know, women or people, I, I actually don't think what I went through is all that uncommon, unfortunately. I think I just had to go through it on the front page of the newspaper. And if some part of my story can help women or other people out in the world, um, then that is a service I'm, you know, honored to, to have. Well, we're glad that you, you know, you made the decision you did. And, and uh, it's an important reminder for anybody out there that, that has a dark moment. Things do get better. That's they right. do improve. Homa Abedin, That's thank you right. so much. The new book, That's again, right. it's a beautifully written. It's called Both and A Life in Many Worlds. And on the subject of Homa's discussion of darker days, we should note for anyone out there who might be dealing with similar issues, there is help. There is love for you out yeah, there. Right. We want to flag the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is one 800 273 Talk. Homa, thank you so much. After a sharp rise in violence on planes, some unruly travelers may be facing jail time. Will everyone else get the message? Stay with us. In our national lead now, despite all the warnings, we keep hearing stories of airline passengers getting unruly and eventually violent. So, as CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Montini reports, the feds are preparing to send a new message. Bad behavior may in fact land you in jail. 
The most egregious acts of in-flight violence are now being turned over to federal prosecutors. For the first time, the Federal Aviation Administration says it has sent the cases of more than three dozen unruly passengers to the Department of Justice. They could face up to 20 years in jail. That's what needs to happen. Sarah Nelson heads the Association of Flight Attendants. Flight crews have reported 5,033 unruly incidents this year alone. The FAA has initiated enforcement in 227 cases. Now it is asking prosecutors to put 37 of those passengers behind bars. We know this works, and the Justice Department just has to take action, put some people in jail, and have people understand there's severe consequences if you act out like this on a plane and put everyone in jeopardy. The FAA says it has no tolerance for passengers who throw punches and shout down flight crews. The FAA's newest plea to passengers aired first on CNN. The agency cannot bring criminal charges, but the Justice Department can. The ad shows the notice offenders open when their case turns criminal. We're pulling out the stops. We have FAA Chief done, Steve uh, Dixon says more federal investigators are meeting flights at the gate. Last week, police and the FBI were waiting in Denver for the man now charged for allegedly punching an American Airlines flight attendant in the face. The crews are there for passenger safety, and this is about a behavior that's not appropriate in an aviation environment, and we need to get it under control. The Association of Flight Attendants says this year's unruly passenger, passenger incidents are on pace to exceed all of those in the history of aviation. What's driving the spike? The FAA says 70% of all incidents are over masks. Okay. Yeah, these people need to get a grip. Pete Montine, thanks so much. We'll be right back. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you know what? You can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.